don't deliver the bad news that God will destroy all evil, including the evil in your heart, mm-hmm. then the cross becomes meaningless. Yeah. You know, like, what, what did Jesus do that for? Or the grace of God, you know, if you don't know that you have a disease, you won't be happy when someone gives you the cure. The cure won't make any sense. Yeah. Well, hello, everybody. This is Pastor John. This is Pastor Tim. We are hailing out of Kearney, Nebraska, a great state of Nebraska. Honestly, not for everyone, but it's for me. That's right. Right now, it certainly is for me, too. Yeah, I'm loving it. Loving the weather right now. It's gorgeous. And uh, this is Every Moment His. It's a podcast devoted to uh, taking apart the weekly sermon and seeing how it applies to our lives on a daily basis. That's right. So this last, this last weekend, we went through Pentecost. And in particular, the events of Pentecost. And as we were trying to figure out what to title this podcast, we couldn't really come to a conclusion. Yeah, you know, um, a key phrase in the text is cut to the heart. Mm -hmm. And I uh, automatically thought of an 80s power ballad. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Shot to the heart? Yeah. Is that? I I have no idea. Is Is that uh, Scorpions? It's not Scorpions. No, No, that's that's rated R. Yeah. Uh, I think it's... uh, I think it's Bon Jovi. That sounds right. Right. Never been a big Bon Jovi fan. Give love a bad name. That's the, that's the song. Yeah. That we could spend a whole episode talking about 80s rock and just... Maybe that's what this episode is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It seems like it comes up just about every podcast is <laughs> some yeah. 80s song. We'll save you the some trouble. Some classic rock. And you can watch uh, Spinal Tap or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, I just want to clarify something. I really do love Nebraska. I do too. And I just want to put that out there because, you know, Nebraska's new travel campaign slogan, it's a little self-deprecating. Honestly, it's not for everyone. But being a native Nebraska person, I feel like when I lived on the East Coast, I was always trying to convince people how amazing Nebraska is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And nobody really got it. And that's fine with me because, you know... Finer Things Club, right? That's right. Yeah. And there's not room for everybody. Now, you're from that other state. <laughs> you're from Colorado. Yeah, I am from Colorado. It's, it's pretty hard. When you're from Colorado, you're a little spoiled. But I did spend uh, four years in Nebraska during university. And I kind, of, I, I kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. I remember when we moved away from Nebraska uh, feeling confined you know, like, right. because the the big wide open spaces you can see for, you know, you can watch your dog running away for three days, that kind of thing. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that you get used to that big space country, and right. it was harder to be in, in St. Louis, or we were, yeah, where we went to St. Louis after yeah. that, which was a little bit more urban. And when I lived in Connecticut, I, I loved all the trees, I loved the forest there, but one of the things I noticed whenever I would come back is how open everything felt i could feel it like wow i can see for miles and miles mm-hmm. and i really love that um, every place i've lived i've liked something yeah i haven't liked something but um you know nebraska it really is just a, a sweet place to live it is yeah and i think there is like something beautiful about it that most people miss yeah you know and i think if you lived in any part of the country like when i lived in thunder bay Thunder Bay is gorgeous in a very different way. It's very differently beautiful. You know, it's 
it's rocks, it's lakes, it's lots of trees, you know. But uh, Nebraska has its own characteristic and beauty, too. It does, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you preached a sermon this past Sunday, Pentecost, to be exact. And you did, basically, you took the whole chunk of Acts chapter 2. Because our lectionary kind of likes to divide that thing up Mm -hmm. into uh, pieces. I don't think it's always helpful the way they divide the lectionary up sometimes. Yeah, I agree. uh, We took a look at all of Acts chapter 2, almost. And I'm just going to read the the two key verses that you focused on. Uh, These verses were kind of the pinnacle of your sermon. Acts 2.37 to 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I almost laughed when I read it. Yeah, I know, I almost almost sang a little bit too. (laughs) Guitar solo just kind of came in and all right. On to more serious things. You just want to give us a summary of your sermon in a couple sentences. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit difficult because basically I just wanted people to see the, the, the whole event. I wanted to see mm-hmm. the whole event of Pentecost, the Spirit descending, the fire, and then also Peter's sermon about the Christ and how people had rejected Jesus um, and and that they, they were given an opportunity to repent. And so I, I wanted people to, to grasp the whole flow of that, which I think is sometimes, like you said, the lectionary, our, our readings that we follow, occasionally chops it up so much that you kind of miss it. You lose the narrative. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted people to kind of go along with Peter's sermon and experience that first sermon that God used to really build the church in Jerusalem. So thinking about uh, Peter goes through... Uh, several scriptures trying to prove to people that Jesus was the Christ and they missed it. You know, that he was the Messiah. He was the greater son of David. He was, and now he's exalted, not only raised from the dead, but exalted to the place of ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. And they had killed him. And so that's what he says to them a few times that you guys put to death the son of God. Right. But God raised him from the dead. And then, not to interject here, but your sermon made this key move that, that like, if you killed somebody and then they came back to life, that's not great news. It reminds me of this Saturday Night Live sketch from a while back where, like, it was called, like, Jesus 2.0 or something where, uh, kind of blasphemous, but it made a point. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that Jesus is raised, and then he and his apostles are like, let's go find those guys who killed us. Right. <laughs> where, where the amazing thing, though, here is that Jesus is raised not to make heads roll, although there is that, you know, return for judgment thing, but in this time, Jesus is raised to show mercy. And so your sermon moved to this key point where, where Jesus is giving people an opportunity to be reconciled. So mm-hmm. Peter preaches, like we just read, to his enemies, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And a line in your sermon that struck me is, have you ever heard of a story where the hero dies for the villains, 
and then invites the villains to become a part of his own family, his intimate fellowship. Right. That's the crazy, surprising thing about the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that moment to me is so fascinating because there's this incredible buildup in Peter's sermon where he's saying, hey, this is the last day. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys are living in the last times and you put to death the Son of God. And yeah, like you said, it's not necessarily good news that the the one that you killed is back from the dead, right? We think, mm-hmm. you know, Christians love that fact. The, the Christ is raised, you know, our Lord is raised. Um, but if you're an enemy of Jesus, if you're an enemy of him, and you killed him, and you're responsible for his death, and he's back, then yeah, it's kind of like run for the hills. Right, yeah. But instead of giving them uh, warnings and saying run for the hills, Peter says, you know, when they're struck to the heart, Mm-hmm. <laughs> shot through the heart. <laughs> when they're shot through the heart, <laughs> yeah. uh, Peter responds and says, here's what you do. You're, you're baptized, right? You're yeah. cleansed into him and you, and also you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and it gets better, right? It's not only this promise is not only for you, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the spirit through baptism, mm-hmm. but also for your children and yeah. their children and all who are fall off. So it's like, God could curse at this time all of his enemies, but instead he blesses, and it's just astounding. Right. Now, and here's where we want to focus on something in particular with your sermon, is this, okay, everybody loves the idea that God's merciful, right? Like, we're going to rally around this idea that God's merciful, he's gracious, he's, he's kind, uh, that he gave his son for us, but we might bristle at this idea that God could show judgment, God mm-hmm. could... Uh, make heads roll, right? God yep. could uh, dole out consequences that are uh, at some point irreversible. And and we bristle at that. We don't like to think about it. Um, we talk about sermons being fire and brimstone and mm-hmm. people just checking out. I mean, I've, I've, want, I've, I've preached sometimes on topics that are scriptural, like, you know, judgment or things like that. And I'm not doing it as angry preacher, you know, with a handkerchief, you know, yeah. <laughs> dabbing the sweat and pounding yeah, yeah. On, the, on the pulpit. But I'm just saying, hey, this is a reality. And sometimes people will, will say, that's not my God. Yeah. And I want to talk about that a little bit because, like, if we don't understand the reality of God, the reality of our problem of sin, the reality of judgment, then really Jesus doesn't make much sense to us, his death and resurrection. And also we're going to be kind of clouded in our understanding of even who God is and, and what the purpose of our life is. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about, especially how do I transmit the gospel to someone, someone in my life mm-hmm. and you keep running into this kind of like blase, you know, like I don't really, that's cool for you, but I don't really get it or it's not really for me. Yeah. You know, what's likely behind that, you know, the sacrifice of Jesus isn't going to make sense unless right. you understand what what he's sacrificing for or what mm-hmm. he's freeing us from. And so thinking about this text in particular, you know, the answer is forgiveness of sins and unity with God through the Spirit. And mm-hmm. so if you think back to what problem is that solving, the problem is alienation from God. Right and sin or offense, debt in front of God. Yeah. 
Um, and so we want to present the gospel as good news, right? But in order to, for the good news to make sense, like you said, we have to understand what makes it good. And mm-hmm. what makes it good is that it's a reversal of a curse. Well, and it makes me think of the way that we approach God in modern society compared to the Reformation, for example, 500-some years ago. Uh, the question that faced Martin Luther, that faced um, the church at that time, was how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God and, and escape his judgment? And now in our modern Western view of things where so many things are sort of anesthetized, you know, we just, we just avoid pain and, and, and we're, we, we just, we're living in such a comfortable age that sometimes we, we don't really think about that question. We have all of yeah. our needs met. And so we, we don't really ask this question, how can I be right with God, which makes the gospel not make much sense. We kind of ask, well, how can I be successful or how can I be happy or how can I be justified before other people? Mm-hmm. Which means that we have this amazing cure as a church, but not a lot of awareness about the illness. Yeah, right. So it, we hear these like cultural slogans of it's all good, you do you. Yeah. Whatever. And I think the problem presented to people often today is like, you just don't have enough self-esteem, you know, or, you know, whatever's making you uncomfortable with your own authentic self, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the problem. And yeah, the biblical narrative says, no, you have a much bigger problem. Actually, that big problem is that you are on the, the wrong side of God's wrath. Like sin has made you an enemy of God. That's a b- much bigger problem. However, you're going to process that psychologically. Yeah. It's, a, it's bigger than inside your headspace, right? And we've kind of made God into somebody who never judges anybody, who's mm-hmm. just kind of a, a big softy, you know? Yep. We just kind of like grandfather in the sky, yeah, shoots we, rainbows and butterflies. and Rainbows yeah. and teddy bears, you know, yeah. yeah. So, but, but the truth is, is that God can't help anybody. And, and so yeah. we look at all the evil in this world, and you, you talked about this in your sermon about we are able to locate evil in the world, sex trafficking, abuse of children, you know, right. stuff like that, racism. That no, yeah, no one would say, oh, that's a good thing. Right. Everybody agrees, by and large, that those are evil things, but those things are expressions of the same raw material that lives in every human heart to some degree. So you talk yeah. about lust is the issue, anger is the issue, pride right. is the issue. And and God will come into judgment on those things. And everyone and will should praise him for that. Yeah. Right? Because if God is truly good, he will use force eventually, his force, yeah. not ours, right, to put an end to unjust things. Well, we can even think of, okay, if we, if you know a judge who releases a murderer wrongly. Yeah. Like that is a terrible judge. <laughs> right, right. And that judge has become an accomplice. Yeah. And it's the same way with our God. We think, you know, if our God did not hate evil, he himself would be evil. Right. right? And and that's the crux of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, God hates sin. He hates evil. And rightly so. It destroys people. It harms the innocent. It maims people. Mm-hmm. Um, it corrupts his creation. And so when we say God is going to rid the world of all these things, the whole world should cheer. Yeah. And th- but the but rub comes fear. down to, right. <laughs> yeah, because then the New Testament question is, is, how is, it's actually the Bible question is, how will God 
rid the world of sin without ridding the world of us. Yeah. And we see that tension come together in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's yeah. also there we see the tension of how will God be perfectly just and perfectly loving. Right. That's where those two things literally cross, right? Yeah. In the broken body of Christ. We see that God is actually far more just and serious about sin than we are. And he's actually more loving and compassionate and gracious than we would imagine. Um, but, you know, we were talking about this a while back, you and me, about how... I think our culture actually really does believe in judgment. And even judgment, <laughs> contrary to God's judgment, judgment with no mercy. So mm. for example, uh, there's this great book I read a while back called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Can't remember the author's name. Look it up and read it, great book. Uh, he's cataloging all these people in the early days of social media who, whose lives got ruined because of something stupid they said on Twitter or Facebook. And so I'll give you an example. There was this lady, I can't remember her name, but maybe you remember this in the news. She was on her way to South Africa and she tweeted, trying to be humorous, um, on my way to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Super offensive and yeah. lacking in taste all yeah, around, yeah. right? She thought it was humorous. She landed like eight hours later and she had gone viral on social media, death threats, I think he lo she lost her job. There was really no mercy. And obviously what she did was insensitive and stupid, you know, that, that was, was wrong, but there was really no mercy in the court of the public. Right. And, and so I think that as a society, we see this in politics, we see it in social media, this public shaming, that people really do believe in justice. Yeah. But we also have removed it from the religious realm where there's at least an opportunity for mercy. Yeah, I think that's right on because um, it's like even after she repented of that, I'm sure she got on the ground in South Africa and she saw all of her Facebook, Twitter, whatever blowing up and, mm -hmm. and everyone's just pouring on this hate to, on her. Yeah. And she recognized her mistake. <laughs> I'm sure she was like, Hopefully, oh man, yeah, that was yeah. terrible. Yeah. But, pr you know, probably even after she recognized that mistake, most of those people... We're just happy that she would never exist anymore. Oh, yeah, for, you know? for real. And, and so I think it's made us, as a culture, like living in this world of social media and polarization, it makes us feel like we're one bad sentence away from ruining our lives, hmm. ruining our reputation. Uh, you're, you're one text message away from, from falling. And, and, and there's no mercy for that. And... Hmm. So, so it's we, interesting we, to me that culture is far more wrathful yeah, <laughs> yeah. than God and far less merciful. And we're much more concerned about the culture's wrath. I we think. are. Yeah. Yeah. So when, yeah, God, <laughs> God's wrath, you know, Jesus, some of the words that Jesus says are so powerful and haunting, you know, but one of the things he says is, you know, um, do not fear those who can destroy body and soul, mm -hmm. but dis uh, fear the one who can destroy both. I'm sorry, I messed it up. Don't don't fear the ones who can destroy the body, but fear the ones who the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yeah. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he's talking about his heavenly Father, the Creator, that we should fear him above all things, any any earthly culture, authority, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's where our our driving fear should be, but often that's just not even the case. Yeah, 
and and you know that that's why we struggle with the language of the scriptures and the language of the catechism we should fear love and trust in god above all things uh, but the scriptures say that that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and that you can't actually be a wise person and see the world correctly unless you fear the lord mm-hmm. and and by fear we don't mean like i'm not even going to talk to god you know not like that it's that you are aware of the presence of god in every corner of your life and you were aware that God made you and he can unmake you. <laughs> yeah. That, that his relationship to you is the most important priority. That his word trumps everything. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's going on, I think, in our culture is we have generally, we don't believe in a true God. Yeah. And, and you know, secularism, which is kind of trying to live life without God or culture trying to exist without God's influence has been pretty successful in saying the God of the Bible doesn't exist, right? The God who created doesn't exist. I mean, God is your opinion. And if that's the case, then it's pushed into the world of pragmatism. Is God working for you? Yeah. Is right? that, is does it that get helping you through you? the day? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's ultimate is, yeah, like we said earlier, kind of your life journey. Mm-hmm. That's what's ultimate. And if, to the, effect that God serves your life journey, he's useful to you. So your if your higher power is getting you to the next day and and helping you achieve, then you do then you, stick yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's none of this talk of there's the God who judges the heavens and the earth. We should be concerned about his opinion. <laughs> right. And we have we have domesticated God, I think. And that's that's a process that's been going on for a long time, uh domesticating God, you know. In the, in the way we think in the Western world. Now we've arrived at something I'm really excited to talk about. It's this fun term called moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah. Also known, the shorter form is MTD, but it sounds mm-hmm. like a really bad disease. But it is a bad disease spiritually. And uh, to give us a quick break re- breakdown of that, because this is, I think, a description of how we misview God is a moralistic therapeutic deism. It's this uh, term that was coined by Christian Smith, a sociologist out at Duke and then at Notre Dame. Uh, it's this idea that God is, kind of, it's kind of like God light. That God is the cute grandfather in the sky who's just kind of yeah. complacent, just chilling. And Christian Smith, the haunting thing is he came to this by researching real teenagers in America. Yeah, the so religious he, life of American teenagers yeah. is the is the, the article he rest of the title. Yeah, and so he interviewed all these teenagers. And by the way, not to throw the teenagers under the bus. Yeah, shout out to teenagers. Yeah, because these teenagers are probably millennials now, based on the time of the research, I think. But also, he found in the research that it's also because their parents believe the same thing. Definitely a couple generations deep. It's a couple generations yeah. deep, yeah. So moralistic therapeutic deism, it's moralistic because really it means, you know, just be nice, just be a good person. It's kind of a lowest common denominator morality. Uh, and that it doesn't have like a Ten Commandments. It's just, you know, be nice. Don't be a jerk. Uh, that it's, it's therapeutic because it's all about you and your feelings and your felt needs. Uh, does this make me feel good? Uh, it's deism because it, it means that it's God is kind of removed from the picture. Kind of unnamed. 
he's kind of like a deadbeat dad. You know, he's just out <laughs> of the picture. He's like, yeah. you know, if you need something, I'm here, but don't bother me. I'm yeah. not going to mess with you. You don't mess with me. And then, If you're in trouble, you know, I got a checkbook and I'll help you out. Yeah, right. That yeah. kind of thing. And, and so the idea is that um, the God's only there when you need him. He's like a cosmic therapist, a butler. He's a right. life coach. A genie. A genie. It's basically every Disney movie. Not to yeah. throw Disney under the bus, but it's kind of this when you wish upon a star theology. We could spend a lot of time describing this. Yeah. But, but I think that that research of Christian Smith kind of gives a name to the way many Christians, even many pastors, mm-hmm. talk about God. So, yeah, with that God, do you have any motivation to be cut to the heart? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, that God would never cut you to the heart because that would hurt. Yeah, don't. You know, it's a, if that's not therapeutic. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. And, and, and to follow that, that train of thought, I think that this is where the role of the pastor and the role of the sermon gets confusing because what is the role of the pastor? I'm going to read a quote here from Eugene Peterson of Blessed Memory. I think he passed away this past year. Uh, he's a pastor who I think his writing had a, big influence on a lot of pastors in our generation. But um, he says this about the pastoral ministry. He says, most of the people that we deal with most of the time are dominated by a sense of self, not a sense of God. Insofar as we deal with their primary concern, the self, directing, counseling, instructing, encouraging, they give us good marks in our jobs Mm. as pastors. Whether we deal with God or not, they don't care overly much. Flannery O'Connor describes one pastor in such circumstances as one part minister and three parts masseuse. Mm. And this isn't saying that all people in all churches conceive of, the, of their pastor this way, but, but I think it's a temptation that we think a guy in the pulpit is supposed to make me feel good yeah, or give me some wisdom for having my best life now, you know. Yeah, it makes me think. I think Eugene Peterson, in, in a different place, quotes. He's one of his. He's such a quotable guy. He is. But he said, um, you know, uh, people spend lots of time making sure that their doctors know what they're talking about, and not yeah. just going to make them feel good. But they right. went to school, and they they're giving them accurate medicine because they they know mm-hmm. their life depends on it. But they don't think that their pastor can endanger their life. Uh, if they didn't know what they were doing. Right. Because it, it's not about whether or not you, you're you transmitting accurately the truth of God. It's about, oh, yeah, that actually made me feel a little better for now. Yeah. But there's not a, a sense of, oh, there's some truth here that needs to be given to me, whether I like it or not. There's some medicine that I need to there's be There's a diagnosis I need and a medicine I yeah. need, and the, and the pastor's been trained to, to dole that out. And... and we're like the groovy camp counselors. Right, yeah. Right. And, and we don't really believe that theological malpractice is a real dangerous yeah. thing, that you could endanger somebody's soul. Um, well, And so, so what's the role of the sermon? And I would say the role of the sermon is to cut to the heart, but not leave people there so they bleed out, mm-hmm. but to then lead them to the good physician, Jesus, who will stitch them up and embrace them and lead them into, well, now what does life look like? Uh, that's the role of the, of the pastor and, and the sermon is to 
we use this language sometimes of, of kill and make alive. Like mm-hmm. when, whenever God's, when the word of God confronts you, God's trying to kill you, but he's also trying to raise you to life. He's yeah. trying to kill the old part of you that wants to, to be in charge. He's trying to kill the part of you that wants to, to guard your own self-righteousness and cut people down and, and uh, wants its own limitless autonomy. God's trying to shoot you through the heart, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. he only does that so that he might raise you up and give you new, new life. And, and I think it's important for people to know that about the sermon because f- I, when I preach, I have to be shot through the heart by God first. Like yeah. that word has to cut me to the heart and I have to bow in repentance and then experience the fresh forgiveness of Jesus. And then I can get up in the pulpit and preach it mm-hmm. to other people. Yeah, I think there is a logical connection here though where if we don't deliver the bad news that God will destroy all evil, including the evil in your heart, mm-hmm. then the cross becomes meaningless. Yeah. You know, like what, what did Jesus do that for? Or the grace of God, you know, if you don't know that you have a disease, you won't be happy when someone gives you the cure. The cure won't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's that diagnosis of the disease that makes us long for the cure which is that Jesus, the Son of God, crucified for you, and then also rejoice in the cure. I am baptized into Christ. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. My sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you have to have both those elements. Yeah. And so this is an important point to make with regard to preaching. So, you know, if you're a listener and you're listening to a sermon, uh, a good sermon is going to make you squirm in your seat a little bit, sometimes a lot. But then a a good sermon will not leave you there. It will lead you to the source of all comfort, Mm -hmm. Jesus himself. And it then will invite you to look at what does life look like now? Um, and, And I say that because some people will hear maybe the heavy stuff. They'll hear the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the reality of sin. And the squirming in the seat will turn to vacating the seat. Like, I'm just out. I don't want to hear this stuff. This is making me feel bad. Uh, this just reminds me of these, maybe a bad experience I had in my childhood of, of, a, of a pastor who pounded on the pulpit and yelled. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, well, l- let's let God do his full work in us. 